engage in practices that could and will likely promote a leaner body composition or a healthier weight for you because the act of doing those things will improve the quality of each day of your life. Welcome to a special edition episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast featuring some of the most elite athletes on the planet. By eating more protein, by getting in more steps each day, by focusing on going to the gym to build muscle, you will feel better, you will be more productive. All of those things will come out of the practices of doing that. Looking good or looking different or changing your image will be a byproduct of that. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at my conversations with podcast guests who have redefined the limits of human performance. And as you'll soon see, the mindsets and habits of these elite level performers reveal lessons that are applicable not just in the sports world, but also in business. For the mindset required to perform under pressure, to what it takes to gain a competitive edge, this episode is for those who play to win. No matter where you are, what you're doing, if you're broken, you're defeated, you can get up and do one more. And I don't know how many times you're going to have to get up and do one more. And sometimes you're going to have to get up and do one more alone. But I promise you, you can do it. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. To kick things off, we revisit the conversation I had with Colin O'Brady who set numerous world records, including the fastest time for climbing the highest mountains on every continent. He's also a world-renowned speaker and the best-selling author of The Impossible First, where he chronicled his experience completing the first solo, unassisted trip across Antarctica. I began our conversation by asking Colin about his upbringing and the environment that molded him into becoming the high-achieving person he is today. You know, I think that I always, you know, had a a degree of confidence, um, but certainly I wasn't sitting around as a kid dreaming of, you know, walking by myself for a thousand miles across Antarctica. Uh, That came later. Um, But I think it's built on the build on the back of of different successes and certainly ups and downs. Uh, Also, also tragedy. You know, when I was 22 years old, just graduated from college, you know, again, still hadn't really seen much of the world at that point. And I was been painting houses as a kid um, and I decided to go on a backpack trip uh, around the world. And it was an amazing experience. I had no money. I was hitchhiking around and sleeping in youth hostels and whatnot. And I found myself on a beach in rural Thailand 
And uh, in that moment, my life changed. You know, there was some guys jumping a flaming jump rope. I was 22 years old at the time, maybe not a fully formed prefrontal cortex. And I decided flaming jump roping looked like some fun, which which it was for an instant uh, up until the rope wrapped around my legs, excess kerosene sprayed the length of my body and lit me on fire to my neck. Uh, and I had to jump in the ocean to extinguish the flames, which saved my life, but not before about 25% of my body uh, was severely burned. Um, you know, and as a young person, it was devastating but it was compounded by the fact that I was in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm in Thailand. Um, I'm on a tiny little island. Instead of an ambulance ride, I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one-room nursing station. And I'll never forget the, the eight surgeries I underwent there. I never forget the, the cat running around and crossed my chest in this makeshift ICU. I mean, I was in a bad place. But the worst part about it, you were kind of talking about triggers uh, of mindset and growth, which was probably the most emotionally devastating time in my life is a doctor looks me square in the eyes and he says, Hey, Colin, you will probably never walk again normally, which took the physical pain uh, to another level because the emotional devastation of that was immense. But, you know, we're speaking of my mother and her influential uh, influence on me as a young person. You know, she came into my hospital room. She flew across the world to find me and I'm there. You know, I know now how freaked out she was. I'm sure many people listening are parents. You know, she's a mother. She's looking at her kids bandaged from the waist down in this shack of a hospital, unsanitary, screaming, writhing in pain and being told he'll never walk again normally. But somehow she walks in with this air of positivity and grace and positive energy into that hospital room. And she says to me, I know you're in a bad place, Colin, like this is horrible. Like I'm not going to try to hide from the, the fear of this, but I want you to do something for me. Close your eyes and visualize yourself in the future. You know, picture a positive outcome. Now, your, your question is, I didn't picture myself like, again, walking across Antarctica or climbing these mountains or whatnot, but I closed my eyes and I picture myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. Um, which is not something I'd ever done before. I was a collegiate swimmer at Yale. Um, so I have a swimming background, but never biked or run or anything like that competitively. Um, and I said, look, I can see myself crossing the finish line of a triathlon. And the next moment I think is probably one of the most fundamental uh, shifting moments in my entire life because my mom had a choice. She's looking at me. She's looking at a diagnosis. She's looking at me bandaged legs. And she easily could have said, yeah, I said, set a goal, but like maybe something more mm, realistic, like you can't walk. But instead, she didn't do that. She grabbed me tight, hold me close like a mother. And she says, great, I believe in you. I believe that you're going to make that visualization uh, a reality in your life. And, you know, kind of fast forward, it was a, a few months till I was taken out of that Thai hospital Still hadn't taken a single step, carried on and off the plane, uh, placed in a wheelchair when I got home. And my mother, she grabbed a chair from our kitchen table and placed it one step in front of my wheelchair. And she says, look, you need to take your first step. And so it was a couple of hours staring at this wheel, at this chair in front of me. Well, from my wheelchair, you know, legs are still kind of bleeding, bandaged, bruised, very fragile. But I took that first step. And that was when my mom said, look, you just took your first step on your road to racing this triathlon. I mean, it seems minuscule. I'm like standing from one chair to the other chair, but that was the beginning. And then 18 months later, I finally did take a job in Chicago as a commodities trader, wanted to kind of get on with my life. I signed up and raced the Chicago triathlon uh, and I achieved that goal. You know, I finished, I finished that triathlon 18 months after being told I would never walk again normally. And kind of the final you know, uh, exclamation point on this story is to my complete and utter surprise. And this is your question. Did I surprise myself? Well, I surprised myself that day, which was, I didn't just finish the race, but I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon placing first out of, you know, nearly 5,000 participants. But 
I mean, to conclude that thought, it wasn't like, oh, I just patted myself on the back and said, oh, wow, I'm some superhuman athlete. My mind, and this is something I think all of us can apply in our own lives, which is my mind went back to that Thai hospital and wondered what would have happened had my mom not forced me to look towards this future and set a measurable goal. Um, And from that, I think I learned one of my life's most valuable lessons, which is not just me, but all of us, every person listening, yourself, um, we all have reservoirs of untapped potential to achieve extraordinary things things, particularly when we can shift our mindset towards the positive and choose how to react um, in tough situations. And so uh, forgive the long rambling answer. um, But, you know, for me, that was a fundamental turning point where everything that I've built, you know, that was in 2008 when I was burned, you know, so in the last 13 years or so has been built off the back of a deep learning, something I had to learn the hard way, literally. But the strength that I've gained from overcoming that obstacle, what my mom instilled in me and finding these reservoirs of strength and courage has definitely pushed me to do the things I've been able to do since then. And Connor, are you finding, I'm just curious, like as, as you're growing a little bit older, you're married, you have children in the, in the future, right? So are you finding, like, I'm just curious, like, how do you balance that, whether it's confidence or hubris of all the things that you've achieved, right? With whatever that next feat is and knowing, okay, how do I approach this in a way where I've still got to make it back? Like, how do you balance that? I don't know if hubris is the word or what, but where do you find, you know, you know where can you draw that line between pushing forward and pulling back? Um, it's a great question. I think that people... Oftentimes, you know, the question, a similar question, it's about fear or risk management or, or things like that. And the truth is, you know, people say, oh, God, this guy walked across Antarctica solo. He's climbed these mountains. He got in a rowboat and rode across Drake Passage, the most dangerous stretch of ocean in the world. This guy must be an adrenaline junkie or something like that. But to be perfectly honest, I really don't see myself uh, in that light at all. I don't think I'm, I'm chasing uh, adrenaline, like a game of Russian roulette that I hope that I keep winning. These are calculated, you know, these are thought out, these are trained. I'm not saying there's not a risk, you know, the risk and the, the tenuous nature of these is what does bring apart some of the richness of the experiences. But at the same time, you know, I, I really do think them through moment to moment, step by step, day by day, and evaluate that. As I've gotten older, I don't think that I'm going to necessarily take on uh, different projects, but I do think that there is at some point a fallacy of, you know, look, I've said 10 world records and someone's like, oh, what's the next biggest, hardest, bigger mountain, further continent, you know, harder way to do X, Y, or Z, um, like the one upmanship of yourself. And I think, you know, at some point that that's a losing game for sure. And so, you know, at this point, I still have all sorts of big dreams out there in the world of exploration and various ways to kind of push my body in unique and interesting ways. But it's not necessarily built on the backs of, you know, what's the most headline catching thing? What's the the hardest thing you could possibly imagine? You know, my, my ego doesn't necessarily, you know, need that. You know, what people say, you know, what are you afraid of? You know, you must not have fear. And I actually have all sorts of fears, but my biggest fear is really in not living and not living the full totality of life's experience. Um, you know, this may resonate with some of your audience or not, but, you know, I've some, come to think about life sort of on a spectrum of one to 10, you know, one being the worst day of our entire life and 10 being, you know, the, the highest, you know, beautiful, most beautiful day, the day your first child is born or some, you know, really high peak moment of your life. 
But I think too often, certainly in, in Western culture, um, at a certain socioeconomic level, we actually end up in this zone of comfortable complacency, you know, this zone between four and six, you know, maybe your boss yells at you at work at one day, but you don't like your job enough. It doesn't really matter. So like, yeah, it's a four, but it's definitely not a one. You're like, whatever. I don't really like this job anyways. Or like on the weekends, you're watching a football game with your buddy, drinking a couple beers, your team wins, you know, maybe you had 20 bucks on the game. Oh, great. That's awesome. But that's a six. Like it's not a 10. And I think too often we're stuck in this zone of comfortable complacency. So rather than thinking about one to 10 in a linear plane, I kind of think of it as a parabola or a pendulum swinging back and forth, which is I've realized to experience the tens, you also need to embrace the ones. You also need to put yourself in challenging circumstances. Um, you know, my, my solo crossing Antarctica was a beautiful experience, not because nothing bad happened, but because it was hard and it was gritty and it was tough. And I found myself at the lowest moments of my life, but because I was able to not hedge against that downside one, but embrace those ones, both the ones and the tens can come to life. And I both see them as valuable. So my biggest fear, um, or the way I look at risk is actually my biggest fear is to living stuck in this zone of comfortable complacency from the four and six, you got to have some four and six days. You got to transfer through theirs from time to time, but I want to live the full tapestry of life's experience. And I think that too often in our culture, um, life brings us to that comfortable middle and we don't allow ourselves to take on any sort of risk to allow ourselves to feel those peak moments of those tents. Of all the adventures he's undertaken, the one Colin is presently most known for is his record-setting trip across Antarctica. I asked him to elaborate on what drove him to attempt such a seemingly impossible journey. What I was attempting to do was become the first person in history to complete a solo, so completely alone, unsupported, which means no resupplies of food or fuel. So you have to carry everything with you from your drop-off point to the end, uh, which makes it very heavy. My sled was 375 pounds, uh, mostly full uh, of food. And like I said, a little bit of white gas to be able to melt snow and turn it into water um, and very minimal gear because to, to I mean still 375 pounds. Uh, I could tell you a whole story. I could barely pull the thing when it started. Um human powered. So, you know, no, no dogs or people have done some amazing crossings of the continent using kites to propel them. Um, but my goal was kind of the most pure mono mono way, just me, my sled, uh, pulling, you know, on foot, you know, wearing skis, but just to, to add, um, not like you're skiing, just to add some, uh, stability over the, the snow. Um, that's called man hauling. And so nobody in history had ever completed that crossing over the landmass of Antarctica people had tried in the past, you know, a few years before I went, a guy named Henry Worsley tried a very similar crossing and he was out there for 71 days, very experienced British explorer. He's actually the grand nephew, I believe of Ernest Shackleton or one of the guys from Ernest Shackleton's crew, excuse me. And he made it 71 days, a hundred miles from the finish line of the thing and actually we got a bacterial infection and ultimately died. You know, another guy attempted the crossing a couple years after that, the year before I tried and he made it very experienced British explorer, made it 54 days into it and ultimately ran so low on supplies and food that he had to be called to be evacuated. So, you know, people have basically started to say, this crossing is impossible. People have tried it. The math just doesn't add up. You can't literally carry enough food with you. If you pack your sled with a thousand pounds of food, obviously you can't pull it. If you don't bring enough food, you're going to run out and you're going to get sick and die or, you know, any number of things can happen. And so people said it was impossible. And my wife and I, we, lo we love to name the projects that I do, you know, kind of brand them, but just kind of fun for us. And so we decided to call this project the impossible first, which is also uh, the name of my New York Times bestselling book, the impossible first. Um, 
But it wasn't because we were like, oh, people say it's impossible in some cocky way of saying like, oh, but I'm going to prove them wrong. It was literally saying this actually might be impossible. However, I'm willing to try my very best. I'm willing to go out there. And if I fail in 50 days, I still believe there's value in trying something this hard because I'm going to learn something from it. I'm going to grow something from it. I'm going to confront those one days and have those 10 days all around it. Of course, I was hoping to complete it and be successful. And, you know, ultimately I was, but it was far from a gimme. Um, and so the impossible first, that idea is bounded upon like, hey, look, certain things might seem impossible in certain moments, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try you shouldn't take those first steps and engage that process which is exactly what we did out there man like a worthy adversary like when you were going through all these different you know periods of adversity like did you ever think hey this is going to make a great story one day or you were just trying to make it through no, I mean, look, it's funny, you know, throughout the entire crossing, you know, you know, Jen and I have, you know, marketed and branded to some level our projects. And, you know, we, we do these things where we, we have students, you know, tapped in through our nonprofits. So we've had millions of students involved in that. And so it's, you know, we're doing outreach and things like that, but once I go into them, I'm not like, oh, wow, who's covering this story or whatnot. And so Jenna had kept me like very insulated from all of that. You know, ultimately, this expedition, which I didn't know at the time, not till I was back in the United States, um, had garnered two billion media impressions. It was the most, you know, widely covered expedition in modern history. And so, you know, kind of a funny tangent story to that was I, fl- I finally, after Lou finished, and then it took a week or so to get picked up from where we were back to this other base in Antarctica and ultimately back to the southern tip of South America to Punta Arenas. And Jenna had flown down to meet me there. And I, I rush off the plane. I'm so excited to see her and, you know, jump into each other's arms. It's an incredible reunion. And one of the first things I said to her was like, I'm so excited. We get to go home tomorrow, sleep in our own bed. She'd actually got a puppy um, when we were out there. I can't wait to meet our new puppy, you know, all these things. And she was like, yeah, about that. And I was like, what? And she was like, we're not flying to Portland tomorrow. We're flying to New York City and you're going live on the Today Show like tomorrow morning, Um, which again, like humbled, honored, grateful for, you know, all the interest, all the exposure. It's been a beautiful and humbling thing. But I've been alone in Antarctica for two months, not talking to anyone. It's completely insulated from this. She's like, you're flying to Manhattan. You're going to be on live television tomorrow. I was like, wait, what? You know, it was a total mind warp, uh, so to speak. But, um, But yeah, you know, look, I think that I love storytelling, you know, And I think that every single person has a beautiful story to tell. And I think as humans, um, we gain inspiration from other people's stories. And, you know, I love sharing my story for that reason, but I love consuming. I love listening to stories. I love listening to other podcasts, movies, books. Uh, You know, I'm an avid reader um, for that reason, because I believe all of us in this crazy thing we call life are experiencing it. And when we share those stories, there's a ripple effect of positivity um, that happens from being inspiration and ultimately lifted up um, by a community of folks uh, that share their stories. And so I don't necessarily do it, quote unquote, for the story. But, uh, you know, I've been humbled with how many people, you know, want to hear me share the story and the success of the book and other projects that I've had. But uh, like I said, humbled by it all, but uh, certainly is not the uh, the driving force uh, to create a story, so to speak, or to manufacture one just to live fully in my truth and and from that i suppose uh is spawned uh, at least my authentic story of my experience and what i've taken from it next up we revisit my conversation with marcus philly a true innovator in the world of fitness and functional training marcus is the creator of functional bodybuilding a revolutionary approach to fitness that blends strength aesthetics and mobility 
During our conversation, Marcus shared the genesis of his fitness philosophy and the key moments that inspired him to create a health-focused community. Between medical school and the creation of functional bodybuilding, there's this eight-year period of time in my life where I dove heavily into CrossFit as a coach, as a business owner, and as an athlete. So started as a coach, got into business ownership, opening up a CrossFit gym, and then simultaneously developed myself as an athlete in the sport that is called CrossFit. All of that was very fruitful on many, many levels. I learned a lot as a coach because CrossFit at the time, through those years, was the biggest lead generating funnel for new fitness strength and conditioning clients. More people were coming to the gym to practice weight training and strength and conditioning through the CrossFit brand than any other method had been really to date. And so I was like, this is where I'm going to get access to the most people to develop as a coach, develop my own skills as a professional. And because I was having success as an athlete, this is fully a personal selfish pursuit. Like soccer in college just didn't scratch my competitive itch because I was benched the whole time. So I was like, I got more to give. I want to just go and really feel what that's like. A captive audience of CrossFitters around the world poured a lot of energy and a lot of love towards the athletes of the sport. I was doing well. People had eyes on the sport. And I was somewhat of a unique athlete who was also a coach and a thoughtful athlete who had a thoughtful approach to training. And that helped me to build a base audience, the base customer that I now have expanded upon with my own business. And so in 2016, I had sort of done this like seven-year run of being an athlete. And that's a long career in a high-intensity, high-demand sport. And it's also a long time in a high-demand, physically demanding sport that doesn't pay. You've had Matt Fraser on the podcast. He is by far the exception to the rule where he won so many times and he was so successful that his earnings from endorsements and prize money was substantial. But the vast majority of us that were competing at the same time in the same era were paying to play. We were not being paid to play. And so that didn't stop me. I was smart enough to know like there's a certain timeline and a lifespan to this. I can't do this forever. It's taking up physical and mental and emotional resources. It's not providing a lot of financial resources. And it's keeping me from dedicating to building a business or expanding my career. And now in 2017, I'm just recently married. I have a baby on the way, wanting to start a family. Okay, it's time, logically, to hang up the boots, so to speak, as an athlete. Once I shifted gears and it was like, okay, I got to do this a different way. I'm not going to be competing in a sport. I was not going to be the athlete that retired, got out of shape, and lost their way. I was like, no, I'm still a lifelong athlete, but I want to do this in a way that I can do it for the next 40 years. And the way that I was competing in the sport and training for competition, also the way that the CrossFit brand and the CrossFit boxes of that time were promoting general population fitness, 
didn't align in my view of longevity, being able to do fitness in this way for a long time. So that's when I was like, these are my thoughts and concepts on training. I'm going to keep showing them to people through social media, which was a really fun platform for me at the time to express ideas, show my own training, show my transformation from competing to win to now I'm competing to be able to do all the stuff that I love, but do it for a long time. And this was how I started to introduce other methodologies into my CrossFit practice. And essentially it was CrossFit with bodybuilding or CrossFit with other training principles that up until that point, people were not meshing together. The CrossFit box was sort of a place where people would join up and they were deeply committed to CrossFit. And anything that wasn't CrossFit, it was like, no, 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 no. You don't do bodybuilding in here. We don't do bicep curls. We don't do these things. And I was like, well, they all can coexist. I want them to coexist. I'm going to try and make them coexist. And as soon as that message was being spoken through social media, it just really struck me like, holy smokes, there's so many people out here that resonate with that. There's a lot of closet bicep curl fanatics that are in the CrossFit box that are going to the back of the gym after hours to do their curls because they want to do it, but they're being kind of shunned from the community in that way. So functional bodybuilding sort of got its roots in that story, but then it was like, wow, people really like what I'm saying and there's something here and I'm going to keep providing opportunities for people to learn, one, that it's okay to mix all these things together. There could be some real value and benefit for your long-term health and avoiding the burnout and the injury and the over-intensification of training through CrossFit in this way. And that, in a nutshell, was like, okay, functional bodybuilding is we're going to keep doing CrossFit, but we're going to introduce other principles that allow us to put a little bit more emphasis on physique, want to look good, we want to keep moving well, but we want to do it for a long time and not hit that three to five year burnout where everyone says, yeah, I'm done with my CrossFit membership. I'm going to go do something else. I was going to say, even on the flip side of that, then there's the bodybuilders. And I think what a lot of people, when they think about the gym and the exercise they're doing in there, it's a lot of like bodybuilding style exercises and static lifts. I think the appeal for them of functional bodybuilding is that bodybuilding alone is great if they're just focusing on, let's say, hypertrophy and, and just developing the muscles, but it's not very functional. So this is kind of the beautiful marriage between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. And bodybuilding's having its resurgence right now all over and thanks to social media and thanks to a lot of influential people on that platform who have shown bodybuilding in a different light. And so that to me is fantastic because I was a bodybuilder who couldn't get anybody to come to the gym and do what I was doing. But then CrossFit got a lot of people to come to the gym and do what I was doing. So now we have a lot of people who are, hey, I want to do bodybuilding and hey, I want to do functional training. Hey, I want to bodybuild, but I don't want to be the stereotypical person who's muscle bound and doesn't have a lot of cardiovascular fitness to go with it. And I see people doing these movements, expressions of their body in the gym that are dynamic. And it's more than just like one dimensional flexion of joints. It's like, oh, that looks really cool. I want to be able to do that. I think people truly want to express themselves physically in a 
elegant, complex way. They want to be dancers. They want to be capoeira. They want to do all this and they want to have muscle. Like, how do I get all of it? At the risk of, well, we're trying to do too many things. I think it's really hit that desire point for a lot of people who are like, I want to look good and I also want to move really well at the same time. And Marcus, I know you're a plethora of knowledge. Before we dive into probably a deeper dive of strength training and the nutrition and just all the different lessons that you've learned for the people that are listening. So I know there's some that they're interested because they want to look good, but I think for perhaps a larger majority, how would you connect the dots between the impact of health and fitness and ultimately the achievement of business goals? Because I know there's a lot of people listening that are corporate athletes, or if they see it as a way to help them be more effective in their leadership and ultimately be more in a peak state day to day. How do you connect the dots between what they're doing in the gym and then ultimately what they're doing at the office? Great question. It's something that I've had to bring my attention back to a lot more lately because I realize that it's not just like intuitive ingrained in everybody's mind that when you move, when you have aerobic fitness and when you have muscle mass and when you have strength, you have a greater capacity to do anything in life. It's a hard one for people to connect with, but it's like, if you have more muscle, you will be a better entrepreneur. What? Like, how does muscle have anything to do with that? Well, We could start with just having muscle mass raises your metabolism, which allows you to sustain a better energy balance of the food that you eat, the foods that you love, and then utilizing those nutrients in your body to create this flux of, I take things in, I expend energy, and that flux of energy in and out is life force. Think of it like you got to a pipe that is taking water from point A to point B. That pipe is pristine, it's clean. There's water coming in, it's flowing out. That's how you want things to flow in your body and your mind as an entrepreneur. If you have muscle and if you have aerobic fitness, you've got a clean, pristine pipe where energy comes in, energy goes out. Water comes in, water comes out. If you're unfit, let's say you have low muscle tone. Let's say you have relatively high body fat, your body composition is relatively high. Let's say you have low aerobic fitness, so a low VO2 max, like you can't express a lot of cardiovascular fitness. Now you've got this pipe, it's corrosive. It's The inside is got sludge in it. This 10 foot diameter pipe is now down to one foot in diameter. You can try and force a lot of water through it, but it's slow. And that's what's gonna happen in your thoughts, in your mental focus, in your physical energy, you're going to hit the afternoon slump where your productivity and your ability to think clearly is going to be shit. And so what you're accomplishing in the same hours that I have to accomplish business, I'm able to get more done because I put in the time to raise my fitness level, increase muscle mass, increase cardiovascular fitness, and now I can flow in such a more efficient, effective way. And that's just scratching the surface, but that is the big picture of like, if you have great levels of fitness, we can create a couple metrics, but I think the two that are most valuable is how much muscle do you have on your body and how much can you turn over energy through cardiorespiratory fitness? If you elevate those things, the other things that you're trying to produce in life will also elevate at the same time. I agree 100%. I think ultimately 
our outcomes are the byproducts of our decisions. And, and if being in good shape physically and mentally allows us to have mental clarity and energy, I can't think of anything else that could have a greater impact on our overall like outcomes and performance. So for people that are listening to this, and we all know what the gym looks like on January 1st, it seems like a very popular you know, resolution that people want to either get in shape or this is their year. I know at this point, we're probably halfway through the year, but for people that have this desire to be healthier, what advice would you have to them for ways that they could be more consistent and perhaps stick to their goals? Because it seems like for a lot of people, it's not so much a lack of desire. It just seems like either the habits aren't there or the mindset's not there. What are your thoughts on that? What comes to mind for me is that when somebody wants to make change or they are inspired, they have the desire to get in better shape, there's sort of been this flawed but pervasive message, which is, let's get it done quickly, that has been out there. I kind of liken it to the medicine 2.0 mentality of like, got him out of shape, so what's the thing that's going to fast track me back into shape? Oh, like, let me do the 30 day, the whole 30 or the 75 hard challenge or, you know, whatever that's going to catapult me back into shape. Right. And unfortunately, not that those things can't work in the short term. People who do those, they can have tremendous transformations. Those transformations then get pumped back into the marketing flywheel. And people see that two of the hundred people that signed up for 75 hard had a tremendous experience. They had this huge transformation. It happened in 75 days. I want that. Let me get into that. And the long-term success on these short-term reboots is low. It's quite low because it demands that you go all in. You go from zero to 100 like that. And when your desire is high, you can do that for a period of time. And then eventually it becomes overwhelming. So I think we're entering a phase and a stage in fitness delivery, fitness messaging, fitness marketing, where people are kind of waking up to like, geez, like it's been two decades where there's been a lot of let's get this done quickly. And people are just on the merry-go-round of let's get it done quickly. And I would even argue that CrossFit kind of played into that quite a bit because it's like, Here's a super intense workout, crush you in three to four minutes. You could do it fast and you're done. And I'll mention Peter Tia's book. It's like, he is kind of taking this other stance where it's like, you got to start to dedicate 60 to 90 minutes to your physical body a day. Be prepared to do that forever. That's what's going to lead to optimal outcomes. And there has to be a component of strength. There has to be a component of cardiorespiratory endurance. And there has to be a component of nutritional practice and adherence, all of which should be at a level that is just marginally above what you're doing now if you want to improve. Don't go zero to 100, but go zero to 50 and let's cruise at 50 for a year. And then after a year of being consistent, maybe take it up to 60 if you so desire, if you need it. That's the non-sexy drum that we're beating on, which is like, Let's do the same things over and over again. Let's make it consistent rather than go and do like the super hard, detailed, focused, restrictive diet. Let's just make these changes. And that's the message that we want to promote. What people need in order to make that happen varies, but I'll leave it at that for now. Anybody who's achieved anything of significance knows that it often takes consistent struggle to achieve consistent success. And this often requires a great deal of mental toughness. James Lawrence is an expert in this field. 
Known as the Iron Cowboy, James is an extreme endurance athlete who is regarded by many as the toughest man alive. After completing 50 Ironman-length triathlons in 50 consecutive days in 50 states, James upped the ante, completing 101 Ironmans in 101 consecutive days. You heard that correctly. When I spoke with James, I began our conversation by asking what could possibly possess someone to do such things. It's interesting you say that and have that perception because it's so true. Like I, I mentioned earlier, we speak for a living. That's how I feed my family is through speaking and coaching. Trust me, I don't get paid to suffer. <laughs> no, no, nobody's paying us to do that. And so it's all perspective uh, on based on where you are in your life, right? And so I knew we were in the in the heavy stages of preparation for the 100, and, but nobody knew about it because we hadn't made the announcement. And then I was speaking two audiences about the 50. And in my head, I was like, it was almost laughable because they obviously thought it was a big deal. And it is a big deal, but it's from their perception, right? But like just looking at raw numbers, right? The 50 was a seven-week campaign to cover 7,000 miles. And that's insane for the person that's coming off the couch or that's done one Ironman or anything like that. But being the person in the driving seat that has a decade worth of experience. And now you're staring down the barrel of a 14 week campaign. That's 14,000 plus miles. Yes. It becomes laughable, but that's the beautiful part, right? When you're in the middle of something and you're pushing your limits, wherever you are, it should be hard. You should be pushing it. And then success happens and you look back and you grow and more becomes, it's like super, super hard math. When you're in fifth grade, you can't, really conceptualize really, really hard math. When you're doing fifth grade math in fifth grade, holy hell, that's the hardest. That is so damn hard. But now when you learn how to do calculus, when you're doing calculus, like fifth grade math is pretty damn laughable, right? And so it's all based on where you are on your journey and what experience and and stepping stones you've successfully navigated through. If you don't have those stepping stones, you're setting yourself up for, for a disaster to happen. So, so what does the preparation look like mentally, physically, when, when you're about to embark on something like this, even going back to like the, the 50, you know, Ironman's 50 days and 50 states, like what, what are that, like even physical preparation look like mental preparation? Yeah. You, you can't prepare for a 50 day challenge, a hundred day challenge. You just try to get in the best possible shape, the most durable physique that you can, because you're, it's a battle of attrition. You have to learn how to eat on the move. You got you to figure out how to consume that amount of calories while moving, while breaking your body down. You have to teach your body to continue to perform under duress, under injury. So the preparation is a lot of swimming, a lot of running, a lot of biking, a lot of strength training. But the mental side of stuff, it's a lifetime piece of work. To me, I look back at my entire life and my mental training started as a younger kid in athletics and then went into wrestling and then went into trying to figure out the sport of golf and then triathlon. These are all individual sports that whether you win or you lose, it's your fault. And you really start to, you know, it's my choice to come back and work on this craft and get better at it. And, and okay, this is where my weakness is. How do I become a more well-rounded athlete? And so really the, the mental side of stuff, I didn't do a lot of preparation going into the hundred, like as far as specific prep, it's because I've been building and flexing that muscle for a very long time. And now it becomes, okay, when the time comes, I now have the experience just to tap into that. And I'm going to continue to grow that muscle even during the experience. And it was, it was pushed to the max during the hundred because, you know, it's a long, long journey. And we, we had to stay mentally tough for a quarter of a year and you, you get into a protective state to where your, your mind is so powerful that it's protecting you from feeling everything that you're doing. And it is almost like you're in a traumatic state. And then your, your brain is just like, I'm going to protect you. 
And then I know we're going to talk about it, what happens after that you come out of that state, um, after something like this big goal in your life happens, how do you deal with that letdown, that come down or the aftermath? So every day that you're doing this, whether it's the swim, the bike or the, or the run, like, what are you thinking about while you're doing it? I'm just curious, like a 112 mile bike ride every single day, like, I mean, are you listening to music? Are you meditating? Like, how, how do you get through each one? Yeah, many, many different things. One, daydreaming. I think daydreaming is super important. You go through phases of that. You go through um, education or learning, listening to a podcast. You go through just mindless energy bump of music. And sometimes you just want it quiet and then you're starting to plan your future. You're, you're going through your past. I mean, your mind can do a lot of different things. And, and for me, the biggest thing was I used, especially that bike portion, an opportunity to to multitask and use use and strengthen my mind and educate myself. I listened to a podcast or two every single day and just tried to learn while I was out there. I'm like, I'm sitting here anyways. I'm unconsciously, consciously, you know, turning the wheels over. I know how to do this. And let's just see if I can occupy my mind so that it can get through it. And you can't look too far ahead, right? When you're on day 15, you're broken. You can't say, oh, I only have 85 more to go. It's just your brain, your brain will collapse on itself. And so you just really have to learn how to occupy your mind in the moment so that you, you are ever present all the time. And, and once you figure out how to be right there in that moment, and you take care of that moment, everything in the future has to take care of itself because you're always in that space. And, and how many times do you think about giving up? Like on, you know, as, as a percentage of the number of days that you're doing this, like, is this something that, you know, once a week or, you know, or only towards the tail end or is this happening more frequently? It's not a question of like, or a thought of I'm going to give up. It's like, how much longer do I have to endure? Right. And so it was never a question of I'm going to give up. It's it's how do I manage or how do I cope? Right. It was more figuring that out, because as soon as you start to go down the path of of darkness and the thoughts come in and, OK, I'm going to give up, you're going to come up with a reason to validate that thought process. And you want to avoid that at all costs, uh, because as soon, that's a slippery slope. Because as soon as you start going down that road, and that's why it's so important to put an unbelievable team around you that can kind of tell when you're wavering, when you're faltering, when you're struggling. And I'm not saying you're not going to struggle or waver on the journey that you're on because you are, because we are human and it's just a natural part of the growth process. Like you're going to struggle, you're going to question. And that's why you have to have a really good reason why you're doing things. You have to have a great center or team around you. Your ethos has to be super strong. And that's the reason why you're doing what you're doing. And if you have a really strong ethos, you can always revert back to that and say, okay, if these are the, 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 the things that I truly believe in to my core, will this decision I'm about to make align with that core belief system? And so before anybody starts any big project, I think you should really sit down and figure out, okay, what's my ethos? What's my core values? What do I stand for? And then really commit and buy into that, those statements. And then every question you have on a tough journey becomes, very easy to answer because you just revert back to what my ethos and what I stand for is. Because you will not make rational decisions when you're broken mentally, physically, when you're fatigued. And you have to say, okay, I'm I'm not of sound mind. What was my core values and system when I was in a sound mind and revert back to that? That's the easiest way to make decisions in a tough moment. And during all of this, I'm just curious, how's it been for your family? I know they've been very supportive, but have there been times when they're like, James, like, you know, you don't have to do this. And, you know, has, has it been tough on them? It's been 
tough on them, but it's also been a blessing on them. It gives us a lifestyle that we want. And ultimately, it helps them all grow mentally in their own ways because we all had different roles on the journeys. My wife plays a very different role than I do. We communicate what those roles are. And just like it's hard for me physically and mentally, it's hard for her emotionally and mentally to support me and what I'm doing. We, we play very different but important roles. And, and I think she's an amazing guest on podcasts as well because she provides a very different perspective than what I provide, even though it was the same journey. My kids the same way. I mean, we didn't just win the kid lottery. I mean, they are exceptional kids because of the, the examples that Sonny and I try to set and, and the high level that we go through and the lessons that they learn through the adversity and the hardship. They fully embrace it and they they recognize that they're exceptional students and kids and everything because of the adversity that they've they've gone through with us as a family. And so yeah, without a question, it's hard. Um, but that's that's what develops and grows um, a, a society. And it's a, a huge problem of why we have so much softness and entitlement in in the school systems and in the culture that we have surrounding us right now. It's a massive problem. There needs to be more struggle and adversity that that is intentionally taken head on. So actually on that note, you're not encouraging them to do 100 Ironman triathlons, but you are encouraging them to do difficult things and to go through periods of adversity. Why do you feel that's so important? Well, take a look at the 2020 pandemic, for an example. Um, you could take a look around and go, not handling it well, no experience mentally. They've never done anything hard in their lives. Handling it like a champ, They let me look at their resume. Okay, they've done some significant things in their life. They were ready for a moment like this. And so just to be ready for the unpredictable nature of life, it's important to take ourselves, our minds, our bodies, to be physically fit, to be mentally healthy, to be emotionally strong for when something like 2020 happens. That was unprecedented. But I'm telling you, everybody could take a step back right now and they could go, okay, handled well, didn't handled well, dumpster fire, train wreck, incredible outcome, you know, all these things. And it's everybody experienced the same epidemic, but we all experienced it in a different, unique way to ourselves. And I'm not demeaning anybody's struggles or their their capacity too. I'm saying from an observatory standpoint, it was very interesting to see the way some people handled it versus some people that maybe didn't handle it very well. And I could probably draw a pretty good correlation between that and their previous experience doing intentionally hard things because everybody's heart is different, right? We're all born with a certain baseline, but it's, I believe it's our responsibility, not only to feed our bodies, to be healthy, to be active, but to do the same thing with our minds. Well, in order for our bodies to be healthy, we have to stress them. Same thing with our minds. You have to stress your mind in order for it to be a healthy, functioning part of who we are. And the easy road is not always the best way to go. My wife always says, look, if I've got two paths, I always intentionally choose the harder one because I want to continually challenge my mindset and my growth. And uh, I look at that as, as incredibly inspirational and, and a good motivator for me to, to be that same example. Like, okay, look, I've got two ways to go here. This one's going to challenge me a little bit more. I think I'm going to choose that, intentionally choose that route so that I can develop and grow and progress. And coming back to like the 100, it actually was the 101. Like, I guess, could you talk me through like, what was the reason why you added on that extra day after finishing the 100? It was a decision that wasn't made at the beginning. It was a decision that was made three, four days before um, the actual 100. And I just kept getting the feeling. I do a lot of things off of how I feel, gut feeling, emotion, inspiration. And I just kept getting the feeling you have to do one more. You can't just teach a principle. You have to be the example. And the reality is everybody struggles. We all have moments where we feel like we're completely broken. 
where we're backed into a corner where we cannot conceptualize getting up and facing the day, facing our challengers, facing the adversity. It's just too much. And I, I felt I would be a hypocrite if I didn't get up when I was broken, exhausted, when the goal was achieved to not go do one more. Um, because the reality is, is I, I promise you, no matter where you are, what you're doing, if you're broken, you're defeated, you can get up and do one more. And I don't know how many times you're going to have to get up and do one more. And sometimes you're going to have to get up and do one more alone. But I promise you, you can do it. And I, I felt I had to do it myself if if I wanted to be a person that would eventually want to talk about, look, you've, you've all got one more in you. You can do one more rep. I, I felt I, I had to do it in order to be warranted to be able to speak about it. As we close out the special edition episode, we revisit my conversation with Joe DeSena, a man who knows a thing or two about pushing limits. As the founder of Spartan and the Death Race, he's made it his mission to challenge people both mentally and physically. During our conversation, Joe elaborated on his belief that life's most satisfying moments often lie just beyond our comfort zones and that the path to fulfillment involves tackling challenges head on, finding strength in discomfort. We had a tagline for a long time. We still use it here and there. You'll know at the finish line, right? You'll know when you get out of the cold plunge. You'll know when you get out of the cold shower. You'll know at the end of the burpees. You'll know at the end of the Spartan race or the Tough Mudder event. If you came home and your dog was sitting on the couch watching TV, smoking a cigarette, painting her nails, and putting her hair in a bun, that would seem a little strange, right? Dogs don't do that. They're animals. If you came home, on the other hand, and your dog was chasing a bird in the backyard and running through the mud, completely out of breath and starving. And ha- like, you'd say, oh, okay, that's a happy animal. That's the other side of doing something hard. Look, if you're listening to this and you're completely happy in your life and it's optimal and every day you've got a kick in your step, you're full of enthusiasm, it can't get any better. You've got tremendous gratitude towards everything and everyone around you. Keep doing what you're doing. But the numbers... And the data show otherwise. The numbers and data say we're sick, we're depressed, we're fat, we're eating shit food. Like, time to change. What was the catalyst for you? I mean, I recall in a former life you were working on Wall Street as an equities and derivatives trader. It seems your lifestyle was very different then. What, what was the catalyst for you in this evolution? Well, mom, back in the early 70s, right? Mom found this. She pushed it. She introduced me to a 3,100-mile foot race in Queens, New York that still exists today called the Transcendence Run. You run around a one-mile loop 3,100 times. That was the beginning of the exploration. But then, without much knowledge, I signed up for something ridiculous. I did the Iditarod by foot across Alaska. Normally, participants do it with dog sleds, and I didn't have the dogs or the sled. It was 30 below, and it was waist-deep snow, and almost died out there, and felt so alive that I could actually remember. I actually have this instinct of feeling alive and having tremendous appreciation for food because I remember how hungry I was. I remember how cold I was, right? Listen, I I was telling somebody yesterday, when I go to bed at night, my whole life, when I go to bed, I giggle in bed. As soon as I get horizontal, I giggle. It's a funny response, but the reason I giggle when I reflect on it is I worked so hard, I'm so tired, that I'm so happy to be laying down. So if you're laying down at night and you can't get to bed and you're tossing and turning, you didn't push hard enough, right? If you're eating a meal, think about when a child eats a meal. 
and they're complaining about the broccoli, they're not hungry enough. They're not hungry enough. They didn't earn that meal. Because if they're hungry, they'll eat their finger. I know. <laughs> I've been there, right? You need to earn these tremendous gifts we get in life. A bed, food, a cold shower. It's a gift. I still want to revisit this perspective because my wife, she gives me a hard time about this because I say I need to earn everything, right? I need to earn this meal. I'm going to earn this nap. If we're going to watch this show, this Netflix, whatever it is, like I'm going to go do something to earn. And she's like, why do you always have to earn things and, and do it that way? And for me, it brings me gratification. I don't know if there was a point in my life where I decided to do things that way, but what do you think separates people who approach things from that perspective versus those that just indulge? I don't think they know any better. I think, like you said, I don't think they've ever gotten a taste of the finish line. I don't know if they've gotten a taste of what it feels like to just be so happy with what you've done and so relaxed with what you achieved, right? So unless you've gotten a little taste of that, how would you know? If you grew up in a traditional household these days and you're not consuming great food, you're eating a lot of processed foods, you're complacent, you don't know what you don't know. You're not pushing that hard. You don't know what you're capable. Like, how would you know? So I pushed my wife pretty hard. When we met, she came out and did a bunch of these races with me and it was awesome. She got them done and look, she thinks I'm nuts. And she did this stuff with me. And she's like, I don't understand. Like when, when do we finally get to relax? When do you stop turning the hot water heater off in the house? because it's a little ridiculous. When do you stop pushing the kids to speak Mandarin? Every day, it's exhausting. I don't know. I, like if I didn't squeeze the most out of life, if I didn't push really hard, I'd have regrets. And for me, regrets would be worse than the upfront pain of actually just doing the work. And you're not alone. It seems like even just with the community and even the movement that you built behind you know, the Spartan, I'm curious, like what led to the first not just Spartan race. I know the first, like, I guess, death race, like the desire to create something of your own. Well, again, I had done these events and I felt so damn alive and I would rope people in. I'd lie to them. I would tell them to come up to our farm in Vermont and I would say, hey, we're having a barbecue this weekend, knowing full well that they were going to be the ones being barbecued, wake them up at 5 a.m. And why are we waking up at 5 a.m. for barbecue? Well, I got to carry the barbecue up to the top of the mountain. Could you help me? And I just loved it. And afterwards, they loved it. And I thought, wow, could we turn this into a business? Could I actually have a life where I do this every day? I change lives. I torture people. I make them the best versions of themselves. Could I actually do this and make a living? I've yet to prove that I can make a living doing it, but I have been able to prove that there's a lot of people out there whose lives we can change, and you feel good when you do it. What would you say are some of the underlying philosophies or, or mindsets just behind Spartan? I mean, the main philosophy is stoicism, right? Can you just do a lot more with less, not complain, fight through, just get it done each and every day in a very simplistic form. That's it at its core. We help each other. We look out for each other. We do the right thing. doesn't matter what religion you believe in. You're going to be a good person. I think we have empathy for others. And I think we understand others more when we suffer ourselves. We suffer together. You get eight, 10,000 people out to an event and we suffer together. The science is clear that we get 
a lot more of those wonderful chemicals released in our brain because we're doing it together. And I'll have to actually elaborate on that because the suffering together, I want to talk about just like building and leading teams for a lot of the people listening, they're business leaders in their own right. And I've read the same thing that those that suffer together, if you're doing something difficult, whether it's a tough mutter or just even something within the business and they're doing launching a difficult campaign, solving a challenging problem. If you're doing it with somebody else, you build a degree of camaraderie. What advice would you give people who want to build a better culture, a more cohesive team? Well, you definitely want to do something hard together. And if you set that hard out into the future, what ends up happening is that team works together, working towards that hard thing is so you get to talk about it. They get to strategize, they get to train together. They build tremendous relationship leading up to the event. Then they go to war, they battle together. They come out, they've got shared stories. I was with my buddy yesterday on Saks Fifth Avenue. He had 200 salespeople together in Miami and they were doing like a boat trip and a couple of days of talks. And I thought it'd be so much less expensive and so much more powerful just to have them all come out and do a Tough Mudder or a Spartan or a death race or something like it would be so incredible. We do it for the Nikes. We do it for the Facebooks. We do it for the Goldman Sachs. All these big companies will come out to the farm. So we know it works. We've been doing it forever. Military knows it works. Military has been doing it forever, right? You take a bunch of people, they suffer together. They come out as one unit. Yeah. It's like, uh, I think in your book, Spartan Up, you talk about the concept of obstacle immunity and the idea that facing challenges, overcoming them, you build resilience and you become better equipped to handle future challenges. So running a Spartan race, there's the physical and mental component there, but I imagine that also impacts people in, in other areas of their life. No doubt about it. I mean, listen, it's not if, it's when we are all going to face some obstacle. We're, we die ourselves. People around us die. Businesses fail. Marriages fail. We gain weight. We drink too much. We take drugs. Like Stuff's going to happen. It's guaranteed. The question is, are you equipped to deal with it? And we sell the equipment. That's what we do. We sell the equipment to help you deal with life's obstacles. And speaking of difficult, how do you differentiate between difficult and desperate? Because those are two different things. There's a long way in difficult before you hit desperate. I learned the hard way. I, I was out in, in an event in Switzerland, exhausted. I laid in the snow. I had nothing left in me. I told my teammates, I said, leave me here. And I meant it. I was done. And somehow I mustered up the energy to do another eight days. You hear stories of the marathon monks in Japan. They do 800 days carrying a sword and a rope, 25 miles a day, 800 days. We're capable of a lot more than we think we are. And there's a long way to desperate, long way. So then I guess this transitioning to the other generation, I, I know you, you've got your recent book out just in terms of raising resilient children this is one that I personally have struggled with because, you know, when I grew up, growing up in low-income housing, it's, you know, I joked with my parents, they didn't really have the opportunity to spoil me. But as you overcome those, you know, even for a lot of the people listening to this podcast that have achieved certain levels of success, it almost goes against their initial desires of creating discomfort for their children. How do you get over that? How do you develop unbreakable kids? We all should be holding hands and agreeing that the next generation is softer than the previous generation, and that's been going on for the last thousand years generations because they've had the benefit of their parents taking care of them and making it a little easier and paving the way, which we shouldn't do. The biggest threat to our children is a six-car garage, right? It's that overindulgence, that ability to be complacent. And so our job as parents is not only to make the children 
become appealing and fun to be around, but also resilient. Also have a ready for anything attitude. And it's hard. Even a person like me who knows it, and my wife and I set out to do it, we still find ourselves, without even knowing and reflecting back on it, removing obstacles. And instead, we should be putting obstacles in front of the kids. We should be making it harder. I'm pretty hardcore relative to other parents, but I still see the mistakes. I And if I'm making those mistakes, we're all doing it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, here's an example. Last night, one of my daughters, she's four years old. It's time to go upstairs, go to bedtime. She's like, dad, will you please just carry me up the stairs? And of course I can do it. But I say, hey, how about this? You give me 16 steps. Okay. And I'll carry the rest of the way. I think there's like 18 steps, right? And she just gets started. That's it. We get 16 done. She feels great. And I'm only doing two steps to a degree. There's certain compromises. Again, it's hard for me with daughters. I think, I don't know if it's different with sons, but it's important to do it. But you know, at the same time, when you travel, do you stay at the Motel 6? Yeah, definitely fly in the back of the plane. I'm not a fancy hotel guy at all. Uh, definitely get up early and do the workout with the kids. If there's a trail or some hiking stairs or a mountain nearby, we got to always knock that out. Bad weather, we're going outside. Any chance I get, disconnect the hot water heater. So just every chance you get, you got to throw obstacles in front of them, make it harder. Oh, so then, okay, so then they get older and even this younger generation, there's been so much talk about them struggling to find purpose, to find meaning. And I believe you're a big believer in fire ready aim, if you could speak to that. Look, I, I think it's ridiculous and a sign of the times that we're sitting around trying to find purpose and meaning. Why don't we start by figuring out how to put food on our table? And if we can cover our bills and we can move out of our parents' house and we can take care of ourselves, then we've met a bunch of people. We've shown ourselves and others around us that we're capable human beings. Then we could start finding stuff that's fun like I did doing Spartan. But like to not do anything, to sit around and think and waste time and not do, what do you think? All of a sudden purpose is going to show up at your front door and say, I'm here. No, you've got to get out in the arena. You got to bump into people. You got to be in the fight every day. You'll meet something. You'll see somebody, whatever it may be. And boom, boom, you're doing it. And if it's not exactly what you want, well, then you're going to bump into it later in life. Because that's what happened to me. I had many iterations until I found this. Yeah. And even I think one of the early iterations you mentioned is just in the, uh, in the pool business. So going back to that, I believe you work with the mafia, but you learned, I think, some important business lessons in making yourself irreplaceable. Well, my neighbor was the head of a banana organized crime family. He gave me three lessons, great lessons. He said, Joe, on time is late. You're going to get here at 8 a.m., get here at 7.45. He said, number two, you got to go above and beyond. If I tell you to clean the swimming pool and I'm paying you to clean the swimming pool, I want you to clean the lawn furniture, straighten up the shed. When I come home, you got to make yourself so damn invaluable that I'll never get rid of you. And I'll recommend you to everybody I know. And number three, never ask for money. Do a good job. You'll get paid. Unlikely lessons from a mob boss, but they stuck with me. And I've used them as guiding principles throughout life, and they work. I'm going to give a huge thank you to Colin, Marcus, James, and Joe for joining us on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast and for sharing their insights and experiences with us. Regardless of whether you're walking into the gym or into the office, we can all take away something from their habits, mindsets, and uncompromising drive to win at the highest level.
If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.